Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Gabby. And I'm Rob. And this is Dark Origins Podcast, where every week I tell Rob about the inspirations behind all mediums of art, so movies, TV shows, books, music, etc. Sometimes we'll talk about times that life has imitated art. And I'm sorry if my voice sounds kind of messed up this week. I've been sick, so... You're coming through loud and clear on my end. Okay, good. Today I'm going to be telling Rob about one of the characters from a season of American Horror Story. Obviously, there's a lot of seasons, so... I, I love that characters. show. Yeah, me too. Which season? Season 11, which was the last season. Okay, right. What's the title of that one? New York City. Oh, right, 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 right. That, oh, um, that was quite the season. Yeah. I, this is about a real story behind that? Yes. That, oh. that season made me feel sadness for like weeks after. It really like touched a part of me that I don't think any other season of American Horror Story has touched. Or television show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we laid in bed watching the season finale, all geared up, ready to go. And then at the end, we're just in tears. Yeah, I was crying. Me too. It was a really, really... Well done. Yeah. Horrible story. Yeah. So, obviously, there are a lot of different themes and characters in that season that are based on real life events. We are going to be zeroing in on the influence behind the Mai Tai killer. Oh, right. Do you remember the Mai Tai killer? Of course. We'll go into more detail at the end about the Mai Tai killer and like some of the differences between the show and the real events. That way you can choose if you just want to hear the crime or if you've seen American Horror Story or you don't care about spoilers or anything like that, then you can listen to that if you want to as well. Okay. Okay. That's that's a good way to handle this. I agree. I like it. But I will give you a quick rundown of who what the Mai Tai Killer did. Okay. And who they were. Okay. So the Mai Tai Killer of American Horror Story Season 11, New York City, plucked gay men off the streets of 1980s New York City under the cover of darkness and homophobia. 
Mm. He was able to get away with his crimes for so long because nobody was really looking. Gay men and women didn't get the same kind of attention and care as their straight counterparts. The inspiration behind the Mai Tai killer operated in almost the exact same setting, except the murders occurred in the early 90s instead of the 80s. Okay, okay. At least the ones that we know about. Sure. But that's one of the differences, right? Because the show took place in the 80s. Yes. The moniker given to the real killer was the last call killer, as many of his victims were last seen at piano bars in New York City. So we're just going to start from the beginning of everything. Okay. The first victim was found on May 5th, 1991, when a maintenance worker was emptying the trash barrels at a rest area on the Pennsylvania Turnpike in Lancaster County. He was having trouble lifting one of the plastic trash bags, which was very unusual for him. He was large and he had worked there for a really long time. He had never had trouble taking a trash bag out before. So he grabbed a stick and used it to open the bag, but he found that each bag contained more bags and he thought that maybe it looked like a deer carcass, but he continued going and he realized that it looked a lot more like a human. This is a direct quote from him. He said, it looked like a loaf of bread, but then I saw freckles. So he radioed his supervisors who then called the Pennsylvania State Police When police got a closer look at the victim, they could see that his penis had been cut off and shoved into his mouth. What? He also had a stab wound on his back, bruising to his head and other areas of his body, and a huge wound on his abdomen. Police surmised the body had been recently dumped as decomposition hadn't begun to creep in yet and rigor mortis hadn't begun to occur. They could see lividity in certain parts of the body, which led them to the conclusion that the body had been moved at least a couple of times. What's what's lividity? Lividity is when blood pools in certain areas of the body. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Crime scene investigators got fingerprints off the trash bags and entered them into the Pennsylvania, New York, Virginia, and New Jersey databases, but no match was found. Meanwhile, they still had no idea who their victim was. After getting tons of tips that went nowhere, they decided to have a composite sketch created, which they placed on the side of toll booths. Very soon after, they got a call from a National Guard unit called the 1st Troop Philadelphia City Cavalry. Hmm. They thought it looked like a member of their unit named Peter Anderson, who didn't show up at a recent gathering they'd had, which was weird for him. Okay. So they got Peter's dental records from the National Guard, and they were able to identify him. Hmm. Five days after the tip, they received a call from a truck driver who had found trash bags full of Peter's belongings along the turnpike but in Chester County instead of Lancaster County. Peter Anderson was a hardworking man who lived a closeted life. He worked at Mellon Bank at the time of his death, and he spent a lot of his time at piano bars. He went to Trinity College, where he was active in many clubs and a member of the fraternity Psi Upsilon, I think is how you say it. Yeah, Psi Upsilon. Psi Upsilon. That's right. I always get confused because it looks like it's pronounced Upsilon, but... I always hear it pronounced Epsilon. So anyways, he was liked by many, but his struggles were apparent. He drank a lot and he seemed to carry with him a deep loneliness. That was something that a lot of people noticed about him, that he just seemed really, really lonely. Even even being in a room full of people, if that makes sense. I I know how that feels. Yeah. Yeah. He tried to appease society and live a lie. He kept his sexuality a secret for a long time, and he could only be true to himself behind closed bedroom doors, but he knew he'd never be able to have his version of a normal life. 
I hate hearing stuff like that. Just that alone. Yeah, I know. He wouldn't be able to fall in love and start a family with another man. So he didn't look for a partner who he could fall in love with. Instead, he looked for a partner who could catapult him further into high society. That's according to his mother-in-law. This is not something that he explicitly said, obviously. Okay. Okay. He found this in his first wife, Sandy. She came from a wealthy family. The marriage lasted almost nine years before they split because neither spouse was getting what they needed from it. Peter then went on to marry a woman named Cynthia, and they and the two had a son. Rumors about Peter began to flutter. The couple largely ignored them, but Cynthia had caught him cheating on her with other men. So they separated but remained friendly, and they were technically still married when he passed. Legally. Legally, and Cynthia said that they never planned to get a divorce. Like she said, okay. we didn't really have any real plans of getting a divorce, but we were separated. Okay, I, I think that makes sense. Yeah. Considering the circumstances. Yeah. Before he left for a trip to New York, Peter spoke with Cynthia and his son. He promised them that he would be home to Philadelphia by Friday night and that he would take his son to a baseball game on Sunday. This would unfortunately be the last time he would speak to his family. Back to the investigation, detectives received tips that Peter had traveled with a friend named Tony Brooks to New York City for a fundraising dinner. Okay. So they talked to Brooks, who recalled their trip there. He didn't seem to be lying, so police moved on to Robbie Brown and Anthony Hoyt. So Robbie was the man who hosted the fundraiser uh-huh. okay. that Tony and Peter went to. Right. And Anthony had been in attendance. He had also left the fundraiser with Peter. So oh. suspicions fell firmly onto Anthony when they found that out. Well, he was like the last guy to see him alive, right? As far as we know? Yes. So far, yeah. So far, as far as they know. So he took a polygraph test and passed it. So Anthony wasn't incredibly forthcoming at the time. He did tell them, you know, information that he thought was necessary for the investigation. And he did take the polygraph test. Yeah. But he wasn't incredibly forthcoming about everything that occurred that night because oh, he like was also or... in the closet and oh. he didn't want to out himself. Yeah. And give them all this information that probably wasn't going to help the investigation anyways. Right. But since time has gone on and being gay has become a little bit more acceptable, he's felt more comfortable telling the story about what actually happened that night from his perspective. Sure. So before I tell you what happened that night between the two of them, I'm going to tell you a little bit about their history because this is just really, really heartbreaking and I just think it's important. Okay. Okay. So Anthony recalls meeting Peter soon after he graduated from Trinity College. They had become roommates with a third man when uh, they both moved to New York City. Anthony described him as charming, caring, and sensitive, and he joked about how well-dressed Peter was. This is something that tons of people noticed and a lot of people remembered about him. At the time, both Peter and Anthony were in the closet, but the feelings were there. Anthony said that one night after enough alcohol, they began the romantic relationship. They just needed a little bit of courage. A little social lubricant? Yeah. But they had to keep it a secret, obviously, and they had to keep up their facades to the world so they couldn't tell anyone about their relationship or go on dates or anything like that. Awful. So Anthony eventually got married and moved out, but they would stay with each other on occasion and they somewhat kept in touch, but they also lived, you know, in different states. It wasn't like they were seeing each other all the time. Okay. 
the little long distance relationship. Kind of. I mean, it's they weren't talking like consistently. Oh, right. So, okay. They they kept the flame alive, but barely. Occasionally, if one of them was going to be in the town that the other person was in, they would call each other and say, sure. hey, can I spend the night? Something like that. But that was, you know, wasn't happening super often. So this is a direct quote from Anthony. He said, if it had been today, in today's society, we could have been partners. But in those days, you weren't gay. Gay was not good. Which is just such a missed opportunity. Like, this is a love that, you know, spanned decades. And just really, really sad. So back to the investigation again. This is what Anthony said happened on the last night that he saw him. Anthony and Peter left the fundraiser to go get drinks at the townhouse. The townhouse was a piano bar in New York City, mostly for gay men. Okay. Peter was already quite drunk before they got to the townhouse, so he was really drunk by the time the night ended. In fact, it ended because the bartender told Peter that he had to leave um, as he was too (laughs) drunk to stay there. So... Peter wanted to go to Anthony's apartment, but Anthony felt it'd be better for Peter to spend the night alone since he was way too drunk to like consent to having sex. And it just would have been, he just didn't think it was a good idea that night. So Anthony lied and said he had friends staying with him before he called the Waldorf Astoria to book Peter a a room there. Okay. It was nice of him to do that. Yeah. He very clearly cares about Peter. Mm-hmm. And everything that he said about him, the way that he helped him this night, Peter meant a lot to Anthony. So Anthony helped Peter get into a cab and he said goodnight. Once Peter arrived at the hotel, the security supervisor helped him get out of the cab. Peter tried to touch the supervisor's butt and the supervisor responded by saying that staff members don't come with the room. <laughs> so he was obviously was not in his right mind. Right. And he never checked in. So Anthony believes that he must have forgotten that he was cut off at the townhouse. So he may have walked inside of the hotel and then he just turned around and left to go back to the townhouse to have another drink. Uh, Okay. But that's just what Anthony thinks. We don't actually know. Right. And that's all investigators knew at this point. And then Peter's homicide turned cold really quickly. But in 1992, it would be attached to another case through VICAP. Right on. What's I've heard of VICAP. What is that? If you could remind me, that'd be great. So VICAP is basically, uh, well, part of VICAP, there's a database where investigators will enter in the different aspects of a crime, like how they were killed, all the right. different details of the crime. And then the database analyzes the crimes and it will link crimes that they think may have been committed by the same person. Okay. So that's how Peter's case was attached to another case because there were a lot of similarities. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So that's basically a tool that the database holds all this data and then they use some kind of program to uh, use that data to link things together. Yeah. So this homicide that was linked to Peter's had been discovered similarly to the last when maintenance workers were doing their route in Southampton Township, located about two hours south of Manhattan. The workers were Wayne Luker and Theodore Pee Wee Doyle. 
Wayne was thrown off by one of the stops on their route. He noticed that one of the bags felt much heavier than usual, and he also noticed blood leaking out of a few of the bags. Not a good sign. No. Wayne pointed this out to Theodore, who responded, saying it was probably just dead fish, which that explanation satisfied Wayne's worries for the time being because people did often use those trash cans to get rid of their waste from day fishing trips. Sure. After arriving to the maintenance yard to unload the bags, Wayne got a closer look and one of them seemed to look pink and he just couldn't bring himself to throw it away without looking inside of it first. He's like, that's not a fish. Yeah. Inside the bag, he found a man's head. Oh, that's not a fish. No. Wayne called the police. The same day, maintenance workers collecting trash along Garden State Parkway found a human leg. So... This time, the bags are a little, like, scattered. They weren't all in the same exact spot. Detectives from the New Jersey State Police Major Crime Unit were dispatched. All in all, they had a trash bag with a head that had been severed. Like, once they collected all of the trash bags from, you know, the different areas that they were found in and looked through them, they had a trash bag with a head that had been severed via the fourth cervical vertebrae and through the vocal cords. The spinal cord was visible to them like they could see it. The second trash bag contained both arms cut at the shoulders and a four by four inch piece of skin, which the piece of skin had a bite mark on it. And they had cut like the killer had cut it off from the body. Yeah. The third bag held intestines, a shower curtain covered in blood, a king size fitted bed sheet from Liz Claiborne and four black hairs. The fourth bag carried the upper torso, cut right above the belly button. The fifth bag held the lower abdomen and pelvis, and the sixth bag held the legs, which were cut at the femur. When taken to the medical examiner, it was determined that the victim had a stab wound that perforated the heart, another that perforated the abdominal cavity, and another on the left side of the abdomen. The body hadn't been crudely dismembered, but skillfully disarticulated. So... Do you, do you know what disarticulated means? Like I have a pretty good idea, but why don't you tell me? When they basically like pop the oh, right. joints like so you that with a chicken. So that you're yeah. you're not cutting through like bone, you're cutting through like muscle and ligaments, ligaments and, and tendons stuff. and stuff. So you have to be pretty strong to do that, I would think. Yeah, you have to be very strong and you also have to know what you're doing. So So that's that's a, a, a nod in the right direction, probably. Yeah. It's a clue. Yeah. There was also evidence that the victim was hogtied before he died as he had ligature marks around his wrist, ankles, knees, and thighs. A toxicology report was run and it came back at a level of 0.23, which is pretty high. Yeah. Definitely higher than the legal limit. The body parts had also been washed and drained of blood. Along with the body was a wallet and an ID. The ID belonged to 57-year-old Thomas Mulcahy. Thomas lived in Sudbury, Massachusetts with his wife, Margaret, and their children. He had been on a trip to New York, but was supposed to come home on July 9th. As the 9th came and went, Margaret began to grow anxious. She called the hotel he was staying at, and they told her that his clothes were still in the room and he had never checked out. She called NYPD, and they told her she must file a missing persons report in her hometown. So the next morning, Margaret went into Sudbury Police Station and told them, that her husband was missing. The officer stopped her there and asked her to please wait a moment. 
And when the officer came back, he apologized and told Margaret that her husband's body had already been found and that he was a murder victim and not missing. Because why didn't he go to her house and tell her? Because literally right before she came in, they had just gotten the call that they had found him. Yeah. Awful. So Thomas and Margaret have been married for over 30 years. Wow. Yeah. He was successful in his work and had worked for the same computer company since 1960. He had been promoted pretty quickly and had worked in international sales for a long time. Sales. Oh, she's doing sales. Okay, cool. This required him to travel often. His friends and colleagues described him as a kind, optimistic, and happy person. He was known to be a great father. Similarly to Peter, Tom was a religious man and a closeted gay man. He was Irish Catholic, not the easiest of religions to belong to as a gay person. Yeah. Which I was I grew up Catholic. I don't I'm don't consider myself Catholic any longer, but being a part of the LGBTQ plus community, even when I was growing up, which was in, you know, 2000s. Yeah. Like even then it was still scary. Taboo. Yeah. And you, you thought you were going to go to hell. Yeah. And I think in a lot of places it still is that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tom grew up in a poor household raised by a single mother who had immigrated from Ireland. His father had passed away when he was young. His mom worked hard to send him to Boston College High School, a strict boys' school run by priests. Tom wasn't the best student ever, but he did well enough to be accepted to Boston College. He majored in psychology, and he joined a few clubs. He drank a lot in college, likely to deal with the fact that he was a gay man living amongst rampant homophobia. He worked at the Boston Library at the time, which is where he met Margaret. Margaret was a teacher, and she had graduated from Radcliffe. Oh, nice. After Tom graduated from Boston, he went on to a graduate program at Fordham University. He married Margaret, and they moved to Concord, Massachusetts, where Tom would get hired by the same computer company that he worked for 30 years later at the time of his death. So Tom would use his work trips to visit local gay clubs. At this point in time, Margaret knew about this. They had been going to marriage counseling, and it was a big topic of conversation. I bet. Yeah. (laughs) The other big problem with their marriage was Tom's drinking. He had been an alcoholic for a while now, and it was a big point of contention. He tried AA, um, but it didn't seem like it was... He was still struggling with his drinking. Yeah, it didn't work for him, He or however that goes. He didn't work for it, or it didn't work for him, whatever. It just didn't or work. Or his life was taken before he, he had a chance to get yeah, better. Yeah, something. So detectives in New York were investigating Tom's business records and accounts, and they got in touch with one of Tom's co-workers, a man named named William O'Brien. William said that on July 8th, 1992, Tom and him gave a sales presentation at their employer's World Trade Center office. After the presentation, they went to Edward Moran Bar and Grill for three hours. Tom was quote-unquote shit-faced before the end of their lunch, but he was acting like his normal self, you know, all things considered. After they were finished, they went their separate ways. Because of Peter's murder, the detectives dropped into the townhouse bar since that is where Peter was last seen. Okay. So they wanted to see, is this maybe where Tom was last seen as well? Right. One man named Douglas Gibson said that he had seen him there. Really? Yeah. So this is starting to become in line with the 
the story from American Horror Story. Oh, yeah. 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 Douglas told detectives that he was introduced to Tom by a mutual friend of theirs, and they spent the night talking, but Douglas noticed Tom eyeing someone behind him. Tom said, this is my only night in New York, as if to say, like, I would rather be talking, you know, I right. or like, let's mingle a little bit before we make a decision to go home together. Yeah. And Douglas responded saying, you're not going to find anything better than me, so go right ahead. Douglas left and went downstairs to get a drink from the bar and came back up about 20 minutes later. He saw that Tom was still talking to the man and he knew that man's face. He had seen him at the bar for the past five years, but he had never interacted with him. He went downstairs again to get another drink and by the time he made his way back upstairs again, Tom and the man were gone. Oh. This was just about all the evidence that they had. But he'd known the guy for a while. Maybe he could give a composite sketch or something. Did he do that? They did not. At this point, they didn't draw a composite sketch. Okay. Bummer. Okay. They had tried pulling fingerprints from the trash bags, but they were testing out of a mobile lab in less than ideal conditions, so they weren't able to get any. (sighs) They did get some DNA from a glove, which they ran through the FBI's database to no avail, but they traced the SKU number. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah, SKU number. SKU number, yeah. They traced the SKU number on the gloves to CVS on Staten Island, and they were also able to trace the saw found in one of the trash bags back to a home improvement store called Pergament, which was hmm. located right across the street from that CVS. So detectives were pretty certain that their suspect either lived or worked on Staten Island. After this lead, though, the case started to go cold. And then on May 10th, 1993... Another body was found in Whiting, New Jersey. Donald Giberson was waiting for his friend when he decided to drive up the road to see if he could see the blimp that was supposed to fly by, which I just think is so sweet. Like, (laughs) yeah, I wonder if I can get a glimpse at the blimp, you know, a glimpse at the blimp. Yeah, It's, it's like something I would do. He saw what he thought was a deer carcass on the way up the road, but on the way back down, he noticed fingers. He drove straight home and called Manchester police. In the middle of the road lay a left arm. Detectives presume an animal pulled it out of the garbage bag that it was in. By the time that... So, did the guy... Ah, never mind. Were you wondering why he didn't see the left arm before? Yeah, like, did the deer get it before... Like, on his way back to the house before the cops got there? Or was there a fucking arm in the road and he just saw fingers? So... There was no deer there. He thought that that was a deer carcass, maybe. But no, I had the same question. I don't know. The other arm was a few steps away. Wait, so there's a whole, there's another arm? There's just two arms? One arm is in the middle of the road, and then the other arm, I believe, was in the trash bags, at least partially still. Okay, so there are trash bags around, like, right in that area. Yeah, yeah. Because for a moment, I'm picturing the guy just, like, leaving a couple arms in one place and then driving somewhere else and then... No, no, they were in bags. It The reason that one of the arms was out is because oh, right. they thought that an animal took it out. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm just... This is quite the story. <laughs> yeah. Similar to the other crime scenes, there were six bags with human remains. And I don't know if I've mentioned this in the other two, or I don't know if I've mentioned this yet, but 
at all of these scenes, the bags were double bagged and double knotted. They're starting to see a pattern, an MO. Yeah, yeah. The man had been stabbed multiple times in the back and he had ligature marks around his ankles. He was a John Doe as he had no ID with him. Again, his body parts had been washed and it seemed he had been drained of blood. They took the victim's fingerprints and they were able to find a match to a man named Eddie Ramos. So that's how they ID'd him with his fingerprints. Finally, they got the fingerprints to work. Yeah. They knew that he had an alias, Anthony Edward Marrero, that he used in Philadelphia, and they had his arrest record, but they Hmm. didn't really know a ton about him outside of those things. What they did gather, or what we have gathered since the case happened, whether it's been reporters or the police, is this. We know that he was born in Puerto Rico and had lived around Philadelphia for a while before moving to Manhattan. Nobody had reported him missing or come forward to give police any information. A Port Authority detective told the detectives working the case that Anthony was a sex worker. So from here, detectives got in touch with one of Anthony's friends that he worked with, and he told them that Anthony would seek work at bars in the area, including Rawhide and Tricks. There was a theory that Anthony may have gone to a bar called Rounds, Anthony's friend Santiago pointed police towards one couple that Anthony spent time with. They in turn pointed detectives towards a man in Connecticut, but that turned out to be a dead end because that man was old and frail and there was no way that he would have been able to kill Anthony and dismember him. Diarticulate. So actually, this is what is like a little bit weird about this case. We'll find out that Anthony's body was not disarticulated. Really? Yeah. Tom's body was disarticulated. Anthony's was not. It was dismembered. So it seems like the killer, I I don't know if he chooses to disarticulate the bodies when he has more time and he chooses to just dismember them when he doesn't have a lot of time. I don't know why he does it sometimes and doesn't do it other times. Right. But yeah, so he's a psycho. That yeah, that's very true. <laughs> Not yeah. really putting everything together here. I think yeah. Meanwhile, the medical examiner worked on Anthony's autopsy. She said his body looked as though he had been killed five days before he was found. His head was severed at a cervical vertebrae. His arms were cut through his humerus. His legs were cut through his femur, and the torso was cut five inches above the belly button. He had died from multiple stab wounds to the front and back of his body, and apparently there had been no signs of sexual assault or activity, Hmm. and his toxicology report came back positive for marijuana. Yeah, but but that stuff stays in your system a long time. Yeah, I was going to say, obviously with marijuana, that doesn't doesn't make it clear if, like, he was high that night or not, or if it was, you know, a week before, like... Who knows? Yeah, who knows? It's hard to say. It could have been earlier that day, and then later in the night, he wasn't. You know, who knows? Yeah. There were glaring similarities between Anthony and Tom's murder, but there were also confusing differences. All of Anthony's body parts have been found double-bagged and double-knotted, just like the other bodies. Yeah. But Anthony wasn't a white-collar man like the others. He was a sex worker with no formal address. And Anthony also wasn't disarticulated, like we talked about earlier. Hmm. He had been dismembered. Investigators didn't think the differences were vast enough to rule out the possibility that the murders were connected, though. Okay. 
another clue brought them to Staten Island. Like, remember some of the, in the other cases, there were clues that the man lived or worked on Staten Island. Right. They get another clue that that is probably the case. So Anthony's head was in an Acme bag and they were able to trace the Acme bag back to the their Staten Island location. Okay. But other than that, they didn't have any other any other clues. So So they know that this guy's on a massive island and that's it. Well, yeah. maybe not massive, but there's a lot of people that live there. Yeah, that's yep, that's it. <laughs> okay. So his case ended up in a pile on top of the others, quickly growing cold. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Then on July 31st, 1993, a man found a briefcase near Haverstraw Bay. He looked inside and found it contained clothes in a wallet. The ID belonged to a man named Michael Sakara. Something fell off about it, so instead of keeping it, he dropped it off at the nearby police station. That afternoon, a man who owned a food truck along Route 9 West pulled up to begin his workday and noticed that the trash barrels were filled. He was angry because he knew someone must have dumped their trash there because he remembered that he left them like a third of the way full yesterday, so they shouldn't be filled. Right, and apparently someone did that. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. So he tried to go through it, hoping to find a piece of mail or something that could tell him the address of the person responsible because he liked to drive the trash to their house and dump it all over their lawn. (laughs) But he quickly realized that this was not trash. It was the head of a man. Just like the others, the remains were double-bagged and double-knotted. It was clear the body had been dumped the night before. Police were able to match the ID brought in earlier by the other man to the face of the man in the bag. So he was identified as Michael Sakara. Michael was known as a big teddy bear. He had plenty of friends who adored him. The doorman at his apartment told police that he had lived with a man named Jim Baffin for years, but they had recently split up. Investigators got a hold of his family who were absolutely devastated by his murder He had grown up in Youngstown, Ohio, a very different place from New York City, and Michael was incredibly smart and talented. He did well in theater, and his whole family knew that he was going to do great things. He had a younger sister who really relied on him growing up as they didn't have the most stable household in the world. As he got older, he knew he wanted to move to New York City 
After graduating from high school, he enlisted in the Army, but he was kicked out under the designation of undesirable discharge after three years of faithful service. Mm. This was likely due to his sexuality. Yeah. Many LGBTQ plus service members were fired under the same designation around that time. Yeah. This was heartbreaking for Michael, obviously, but he picked himself up and continued on. Eventually, he moved to New York City, where he made a strong group of friends. He was a regular at the Five Oaks Bar, which is another piano bar, okay. and his presence was always appreciated. And he he went there a lot. He went there like I think five or six days a week, every oh, week. Wow. Yeah. So he had friends there. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Police interrogated Michael's ex-boyfriend, who told them that Michael likely knew his killer. He said Michael would have never gone home with a stranger. The autopsy revealed that Michael was killed due to blunt force trauma to the head and that the killer had dismembered Michael not too long before dumping his remains. Detectives frequently went to the Five Oaks bar to interview witnesses after this all happened. Yeah. A task force was set up to try to catch the killer because now they're like, there's pleas from people in the community, especially mostly gay people in the community saying, please, you have to do something about this. Like, Right. There's this there's is, someone out there killing gay people. We need help. Yeah. And this is the fourth victim. Like, right. We, yeah. Very much like the TV show. Yeah. Yep. The bartender at Five Oaks told investigators that she remembered a man who called himself either Mark or John drinking with Michael at last call. He said he was a nurse at St. Vincent's Hospital. And then another tip came in less than a month after Michael's murder. And the tip came from a man who said that he met a nurse at Julius, which was a different gay bar in the city. Mm. And they went home together. But the tipster said he woke up in the middle of the night to the nurse trying to tie him up. The man was able to fight back and flee the scene. But he said he ran into the man again at the townhouse bar, which is where Where some of the other victims were seen not too long after. Despite the fact that he literally had to run away from this man trying to tie him up, the nurse had the audacity to ask him to go home with him again. Obviously, he said no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no thanks, bud. The tipster said the nurse worked at Mount Sinai Hospital and lived in Staten Island, but that was all that he knew. Well, um, it's, we're getting closer. But yeah, that, I mean, that's they, he still gave them a good amount of information. So investigators subpoenaed multiple hospitals in the area to get information about the nurses that worked there. They also got headshots. So they showed them to the bartender and to the tipster to see if they could identify any of them. Sure. They weren't able to identify any of them with 100% certainty, but the bartender did point to one and noted the similarities between him and the man that she saw Michael with last that she was talking about the nurse. Okay. But she said, she said the hair looks really similar, but she wasn't able to ID him with 100% certainty. I mean, if just his hair looks similar, it's not even close to 100%. Right. But. If I had nothing else to go on, I would probably right. follow that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Which they didn't do. Oh. They didn't dig any deeper oh, into shit. that nurse that stuck out to her. So, like the others, Michael's case went cold. Nearly a decade later, Margaret Mulcahy was still hunting for her husband's killer. So, she's the wife of Tom. Thomas right, Mulcahy. and she's been doing this for about 10 years now? Yes. Wow. She had Never hired- gave up. Never give up. I like that. Yeah. Well, it's fucking terrible. I wish that she didn't have to do that. I agree. 
But, but it happens a lot. I know. It's awful. Police have a lot that they're doing, and if they don't have the leads, then sometimes... Well, I also think for a long time, they didn't really care that much about this case. Yeah, there's I, I know that that changed. Like, I know there are detectives who worked there at some point in the investigation and said that that they did care or that yeah. they started to care or whatever. But I'm just saying there were definitely there was a period of time where they were not really oh, investigating yeah. very hard uh-huh. and the press wasn't talking about it either. So, right. right. It was just how the same, th- same idea with how Dahmer got away with stuff for so long. Right. Exactly. And many others. Yeah. So she had hired a PI who contacted detectives from the case, but she also reached out to them. They didn't have any new tips or leads, but one of the detectives was watching a TV show soon after this conversation with her. And in the TV show, they were talking about cyanoacrylate fuming, which was a new technique in fingerprinting. So a light bulb went off and he was like, we might be able to use that to get the fingerprints off of some of the evidence from these murders. Sure. So they sent the evidence from the murders to a lab in Toronto where they successfully lifted prints. Let's go. They submitted the prints and finally, after almost a decade, they got a hit. Robert Rogers Jr. was born on June 16, 1950. He grew up in a large family and had a relatively normal childhood. He was bullied relentlessly for being different in one way or another, whether it was having a high-pitched voice or the inability to make friends easily. His father hated that he wasn't a stereotypical boy and opted to teach his oldest daughter how to do quote-unquote manly things like hunt and fish instead of trying to teach Richard. Hmm. Richard, and this wasn't like, uh, oh, I know that you're not super into this and your sister is, so I'm going to teach her. This was a thing of like, it's a waste of time to even try to teach you because you're not manly enough. Yeah. And you never will be. Right. He's like 11. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Richard apparently stabbed his neighbor at one point in high school, but no charges came out of it. He was institutionalized for a little bit, but he was eventually released to go on and graduate high school. Like psychiatric care yeah. kind of thing? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, that makes sense. But anyway. Yeah. I'm not saying that he should have been charged or shouldn't have been charged. Just wasn't. He just wasn't. Yeah. Right. He went on to attend Florida Southern where he quietly floated through to graduation and then he moved to Orono, Maine after his college graduation to attend graduate school. Okay. In Maine, he roomed with three other people. One of them, Frederick Allen Spencer, did not get along with Richard. They just didn't really care for each other. Okay. On April 28th, 1973, Richard killed Frederick. Like, how did we know that? Or so, we getting to that? Like, did he get charged? Or, or, like, is this something that happened later? Like... Yes, he did get charged, and this is actually how the fingerprints led to him because they took his fingerprints when they charged him. Of course. So um, I'll tell you about how they how that all unraveled right now. Okay, cool. He hit him in the back of the head eight times with a hammer. Frederick didn't die right away, so Richard put a plastic bag over his head until he died of asphyxiation. Oh. And then he played it cool until he could drag Frederick's body to his car wrapped up in a tent. Like played it cool like around his roommates? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He drove to an area called Birdstream Forest and dumped his body. A few days later, cyclists came upon the body and called police. 
Detectives were able to trace the body back to a post office box, run it out to Frederick via a key they found in his pocket. Oh. So they visited the house Frederick shared with Richard, and they found a bunch of evidence in Richard's room. There were bloody fingerprints on the door, bloody footprints on the floor, blood all over the walls, and the hammer that was used to bludgeon Frederick was there. Just days later. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so the guy stabbed somebody when he was a kid. Now he kills somebody brutally, and the police know it's him, so why is he still walking around? That's a very good question. So I'll answer it right now. Okay. Richard claimed to the police that he killed Frederick in self-defense and dumped his body because he was worried that the police would think that he did it on purpose. Oh, yeah, of course. So they still charged him with murder. But at the trial, Richard said that Frederick tried to hit him in the head with a hammer and he was able to grab it and then hit Frederick in the head eight times and he claimed that frederick was still fighting at this point so he pulled the plastic back over his head until he stopped breathing that does okay i know that sounds like bullshit but okay it doesn't make any sense but i guess that like people who were there said that richard did a really good job of testifying like he he made it sound really believable i guess well yeah he's a psychopath yeah So Richard's attorney asked the judge to reduce his charge to manslaughter, and the judge agreed to do so, and then deliberations to determine whether they find him guilty or not guilty began the day after that. Okay. And they found him not guilty. So he was released from jail, and he then enrolled at Pace University in New York. So he just went on with life. Just no, no problems here. Yeah. Like that's, I mean, I'm laughing a little bit because of how absurd that is. That's not funny. It's just the absurdity. The absurdity of it is insane. I I know. This is going to happen to him again where he gets away with a crime. Again? Yeah. So now he's in New York. And after he graduated from graduate school, he got a job at Mount Sinai Medical Center as a nurse. Right. And he was, you know, just working and doing his thing. And then one night in 1988, he went to the GH club and started talking with a man named Sandy Harrow. He had listened to Sandy talk to his friends about the stock market and real estate for a while beforehand. So he told him about the apartment that he lived in. Like he was just quietly sitting back listening to the conversation to hear like what interests this guy. And so once he started talking to him, he was like, oh yeah, I live in this apartment and it's a great opportunity for real estate investors because they just switched it to co-ed. So if you're interested in flipping an apartment, you could easily buy it cheap, flip it and sell it for double the price. And so he asked Sandy if he would like to come look at it. Sure. Sandy declined the offer, but Richard gently pushed offering to drive him back home after. So Sandy finally agreed. Okay. Once they got to the apartment building, Richard warned Sandy that his apartment was really hot. As they stepped inside, Richard offered to get Sandy a drink. Sandy asked for a Diet Coke, but Richard came back with an orange juice. Sandy drank it, and before he knew it, he was falling towards the floor, unable to stay awake. Mm -hmm. He woke up hours later, naked and tied up with tons of hospital bracelets. He obviously started screaming, and he saw Richard inject some type of drug into a vein on top of his hand. This caused Sandy to pass out again. 
He wouldn't wake up again until he was being put back into his clothes and pushed into his apartment building. He passed out again once he got into his apartment building, and once he finally woke up, he called a friend for help. His friend took him to Roosevelt Hospital, where he was given a rape kit and other tests. The rape kit came back negative, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he wasn't raped. It it means that either, okay, maybe he wasn't, or that Richard used a condom and didn't leave DNA or any oh, other fluids right. behind. Okay. But it doesn't mean either. It, it's just like, we, we don't know. Yeah, they can't confirm no that he was raped. There's no evidence that he was. Yeah, they can't confirm right. that he was raped, but they also can't confirm that he wasn't. Richard chose to have a bench trial, which was good for him, good for Richard, because that meant that he wouldn't have to be outed, not only as like just a gay man, which I don't think that I don't think that was as big of a worry for Richard at the time as being outed as like a predator, you know? Yeah. So having a bench trial, he wouldn't have to be outed to a jury the same way that he would if he had a jury trial, sure. if that makes sense. Sure. So he thought, like, he's like, this is better for me. Yeah. And he was acquitted again. Turns out it was really good for him. Yeah. Yeah. His defense attorney, like, really just did a good job for him. He he really, like, twisted the words of the man. Be- and I know that that's his job. I just feel, I do feel really bad for the victim because he got no justice and his words were used against him and it just sucked. But um And then it turns out this guy goes and kills at least four more people. Yeah. Yep. So once they got once the fingerprints connected the evidence to Richard, yeah. They told him that they suspected he was a victim of credit card fraud to get him to come in to talk to them. Oh, okay. And when they got him to the interrogation, they asked him, you know, qu- some questions, obviously, and he told them that he did know Michael Sakara, but he pretty quickly asked for a lawyer once he realized that they were suspecting him of the murders. Right. They searched his home and they did find some evidence. They found a bottle of Versed, which is mm-hmm. used as a date rape, date rape drug a lot. They also found his carpet fibers were consistent with the ones found on Tom Mulcahy's body. Okay. Okay. And he had some plastic bags that were very similar to ones that the victim's body parts were put inside. Okay. They also found in his Bible highlighted passages that talked about decapitation and dismemberment. They also found horror movies, which I don't think means anything one way or another, but that that apparently was important enough I mean, for them it's to not a, It's not it. a check in the good column. I mean, I, I watch a lot of horror movies, but uh, if you're watching horror movies and then killing people, I mean, you're probably not watching Disney films, right? I would think that would be an even worse Oh, that thing. is creepier. But, um, oh, what am I? Th- they also found a map of New Jersey, which some of the places that he dumped victims' body parts were in New Jersey. And then they also, they do think that he could be responsible for other murders, which I'll tell you a little bit about one of the other ones that he thinks he, or they think he could have been involved in. Okay. And then they found Polaroids of men where he had drawn stab wounds on them. On the Polaroids themselves? Yeah. Okay. So with all of the evidence, I mean, the fingerprints on the bags, like it was 
pretty clear that it was him. Yeah, it's we, yeah, we know it's him. They only charged him with the murders of two of the victims, Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero, because mm. they didn't have enough evidence to charge him with the others. Sure. But he was found guilty, finally. Thank God. And he was sentenced to life in prison. Good. One of the other murders that they think that he might be involved in is the murder of a man named Matthew Piero. And this actually happened in 1982, so oh. about 10 years before the last call killings happened. Yeah. He was found dead in Florida. So he had been strangled and he had been stabbed six times and one of his nipples had been bitten off. Oh. He was last seen leaving a gay bar in Orlando. So his murder was very similar to the murders of all of Richard's other victims. Yeah. Which means there's probably more in between that we just don't know about. Absolutely. And they could put Richard in the area at the time for a college reunion, like okay, that sure. specific area of Florida at the time. They also, I believe, matched a bite mark on Matthew's body to Richard. So well, yeah, probably him. Yeah. I'm not sure why they didn't charge him. I don't know if they just felt like he's already in prison. So, or maybe they just couldn't for sure make it stick. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, but um, it seems pretty clear. The general consensus is that it was him. Yeah. He was also suspected in another murder in 1986 of a man named Jack Andrews. Jack's body parts were found in garbage bags in Connecticut. And he went to Maine, so, right? He left Florida, went to Maine. Yes, and actually, he would bunch up his vacation days to take vacations, like week-long vacations sure, to a bunch of different places. He would go to California. He would go to places on the East Coast. So there could be murders. Like every one of these, you know, v- vacations that he went on, he could have murdered someone. Yeah, he was just on a murdercation. Yeah, because I mean, like, that seems like a pretty good way to quickly murder someone and get out of town before anyone can connect it back to you to just take a week-long vacation. You to know. some random, you're, I'm in Albuquerque for a yeah. week. Yeah, to yeah. some place that you have no ties to. Sure. So that is the story of the last call killings. And that is what the Mai Tai killer is based off of. So they did a really good job in American Horror Story of staying pretty true to the actual story obviously um there you know were some some pretty big differences for the plot line like the 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 Mai Tai killer was also a nurse but he was killing gay men to take a body part from each man that he killed and put it together to make one one man yeah, he, it was Frankenstein called, project. Yes, it was like yeah, like a Frankenstein. Um, what did he call it? The Sentinel, I think, is what he, he called did. it. He called it the Sentinel. Yeah, and the protagonist are he's trying to kill them, and he is like only like parts that I don't have yet are a penis and a heart. So I'm going to use you know your penis your, and your heart. Yeah, yeah. and uh, thankfully they are able to kill him and stop him from doing that but he wanted to like use this this man the sentinel 
he wanted to like unveil it at pride so that the right. city could see like you guys are not paying attention to us you guys are not helping us there right. is there's terrible things happening to us and nobody is talking about it so i he had like a he had like a like an altruistic motive yeah but a in really a way. <laughs> fucked up sick yeah. way of going about yeah. it and he also like there are parts in the in American Horror Story where it's very clear that he does have some sick sexual gratification from cutting up body parts. Like, right. but he's ashamed of it. So I feel like that using that justification that he's going to unveil the Sentinel at Pride is like his way of justifying. Yeah, of justifying his his yeah. want to do this, sure. his want to kill and dismember men you know yeah you you know but uh aside from that like part of the storyline obviously because that's a little outside of the box yeah yeah uh they did a pretty good job like he would go to bars in new york city and that's how he would you know find the men that he was going to kill which is the same exact way that richard did it well except he bought him a mai tai yeah yeah that's why he was called the mai tai killer yeah and he would also you know, inject his victims with drugs. Yep. So I think, you know, especially the the whole environment surrounding it all, how it seems like the police aren't doing a whole lot about it at the time. The media is not really reporting on it. That was all very true to the real life events. They talked a lot about that in the season and that is all exactly what it was like when this was all happening right so but the the real horror that i think that they addressed in in that season were some things about that time you know i was alive and and i was a young man obviously a young kid but i remember hearing things snippets you know and as an adult i didn't realize some of the things that they that they showcased like you know people at that time in the 80s were were dying of the AIDS epidemic, mm-hmm. right? Big time. Yeah. Nothing was being done. And there was a lot of gay hate because they were being blamed for HIV. And when they showed one of the protagonists dying of, of AIDS and the people that were treating him were coming in in like hazmat suits and telling his partner, his lifelong partner, that he couldn't be there because you had to be family. Yeah. Right? And I've always been in favor of, of gay marriage, right? But I never thought of that, that you would be asked to leave a hotel, like a hospital room because visiting hours are over, you know, because you're not next of kin. But like the guy said, like, like hell, I'm not next of kin. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. But then they also showed the isolation yeah, where no one was going to help these people. And, and I think everybody here knows, at least intellectually, that dying of HIV AIDS is is a slow, painful death. And when there was no treatment for it, it was widespread. And there were a lot of people that died that way. And, and even more isolated and alone than they described in the show, because at least those two people had each other. Yeah. And the the artful way that they address that subtly but also in your face 
and then the end, which I, I won't give that away. It's it's very artistic and meaningful and hard to watch. Um, I'm gonna start crying just thinking about I know, it again. It I was know. one of the most like I impactful. Don't know. Yeah, it just it really hadn't had a big impact on me and. One of the sources that I got a lot of this information from was a book called Last Call, A True Story of Love, Lust, and Murder in Queer New York by Elon Green. And you said in queer New York? Yeah. Okay. Um, And they talk a, a lot in the book about how the impact of HIV and their just the whole how it shifted everything changed because of it in right you know like the man who was kidnapped and potentially raped by right. richard like he was terrified of getting hiv and sure. he was so scared that he couldn't remember if he had been raped or not because that could have been a death sentence for him sure. if he was raped and you know obviously they didn't find any semen but that was something that he when he didn't know before he got was able to get tested and know for sure, he said like he was absolutely terrified. And some of the other people who were victims who didn't go out a lot, it's because they were also terrified of getting HIV. Like they were very careful with who they like who they were bringing home and who they were having sex with. And, you know, to a degree that is something that we don't have to worry about so much today. Like, obviously, right. you know, you still um, have to be selective of who you're having sex with. Yeah. And you have but, to be careful, but it's not the same. Yeah. And, because also and, like the, the fear that was that was um, injected into everyone, you know, like not just the actual dangers, but, but the, the perceived the right that a lot of it was just homophobia and not right. not true. Like that was the other thing that I was going to say. Um, some of the workers who found the men's bodies were told that they would have to go get an HIV test on because right. it was a gay man. And the whole backdrop of all of this, like HIV played a huge role. I mean, it just like it's woven throughout the whole story of events. Yeah, it was there very were, well done to it. it like, I, there, Well, no, no. I mean, like I'm talking about like in the in real life, like a lot of the that fundraiser, for instance. Oh, right. The, right, right. the man that was talking about it, um, Anthony, he said over half the people were dead a decade later from HIV. Like, oh, like uh, over half of the guests were dead yeah. a decade later. And I, yeah, I just it, so many heartbreaking things at once and a whole community that. I'm a part of now, you know, obviously, and it's kind of scary seeing rights being taken away again because the effects of pushing an entire group of people towards the margins of society are devastating. Right. Like all of these men were loved by the people in their life. They had full lives and they were ended way too soon. Yep. And it shouldn't have happened like that, you know. No, but, you know, it's important that we go forward and make sure it doesn't continue. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why we do stories like this and why American Horror Story did it. And hopefully we don't forget history because we don't want it to repeat itself. Right. Exactly. I agree. And before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to very quickly 
tell everyone about a TikTok account that I came across um, that is trying to help reunite a Native American baby with her family. She's currently with non-Native American foster parents. You can find the whole story on the TikTok of Anupiak Potato. It's spelled, her handle is spelled I-N-U-P-I-A-Q-P-O-T-A-T-O. And you'll find the whole story there and you'll find the petition to help baby Chanel in her description. So I just wanted to put that out there because the story really broke my heart and it is just not just at all. So so you want to get some special attention to someone who deserves it. Yeah. Yep. All right. And then I think that's all. So we will see you guys in the next episode. I love you all. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.